0: coaches, and B2B service providers, head to upmyinfluence.com slash guest, and I'd love to promote your expertise to our amazing audience. Let's get on with the show. With us right now, it's Marty Strong. Uh, Marty, you are a CEO, you're an author, you're a speaker, you are a former Navy SEAL, uh, so it's kind of you know it's kind of funny when I uh, chat with someone who definitely saw action. Um, uh, you know, it it's, it kind of reminds me of going to my kids' uh, Veterans Day programs, and you know they recognize all the veterans. And you know, I remember in elementary school I'd go and sit up, you know, with all the other veterans, and we'd you know have maybe a second to talk about. And I was like, well, I uh, I manned a typewriter. <laughs> I was as a Navy journalist. Uh, you had quite an experience.
1: Yeah, 20 years. That was, uh, that was lively, to say the least.
0: And, and so today, uh, you are the author of the book, Be Nimble. Uh, you've written, written several fiction novels, uh, and then uh, your new book, which is on pre-order, Be Visionary. Uh, so Marty, would you mind kind of give us, giving, uh, giving us a,
1: an overview of your work today? Sure. So I joined the Navy uh, out of Nebraska, just trying to get out of Nebraska through a kind of a mistake of orders. I ended up at the SEAL training command out in California, San Diego, California at 17 uh, by 17 and a half. And I was the least likely person you'd ever expect. <clears throat> kind of like Goggins. Uh, he had, <laughs> he had the weight thing, trying to, try to overcome that. I was 125 pounds soaking wet when I showed up, but they, uh, they actually talked me into trying. It's a volunteer program. Yeah. So I, so I joined a class of 126 other guys. They were all pre-screened. They all wanted to be SEALs. And uh, somehow I just kind of put my head down, put one foot in front of the other, and six months later there were only thirteen of the original 126 left, and I was one of them. So, and I'd gained two pounds of, of, <laughs> of, of, <laughs> of, of raw meat. I was all muscle. Um, yeah. So then I, you know, I go go to the East Coast. My first SEAL command was SEAL Team Two, and you uh, you're trained in kind of a primary responsibility. My initial one was intelligence. And went to a bunch of schools for that and came back. Eventually, you start to uh, be moved around. They try to cross-train cross, cross train you. So I got into communications, advanced communications, went to a bunch of schools for that. Uh, diving schools, got all kinds of other uh, uh, jump schools, advanced free fall, which is like like uh, skydiving. And by the time you get to be a senior enlisted, you're, you're kind of a jack-of-all-trades because you've played and been trained and gone through that whole kind of spiraling yeah. up over time and then i became an officer so uh i spent the last 10 years as an officer
0: yeah then well, I, th- yeah th- i mean thank you for all that time invested uh and i'm sorry i cut
1: you off what, what, what else were no, you going to say oh no, see then i then i uh, hung the uniform up and stepped out in the wild and crazy world of, of commercial business
0: yeah and how does someone who has gone through number ones kind of the seal training but then you know kind of the lifestyle of living uh, and serving as an ABCL. how does that impact you in business when you think about you showing up to the office versus someone that did not have that background um, what what how does that mold a person
1: well a lot of the a lot of the traits are already there They're, they basically uncover them it's a little bit different than some other special operations um, programs where they in our case, what they do is they basically the, the the as Michelangelo or Da Vinci would say, you know, the the image was in the stone, and they just revealed the image as they chip away at it. You know, it was always there. So that's how they kind of approach it. They put you through a crucible of situational and scenario-driven challenges that seem to be all physical, but they're really what they're all about is driving your psychology. Yeah. Right? What I always say, you know, to uh, to see if the voice inside your head wins, that's your voice of doubt, right? But if you become the voice in your head you know, if you're the, if you're the narrator, then you kind of taking control of your, of your own destiny and, and your own outcome. So you'll learn that about yourself if you didn't know about it, but you were kind of that person anyway, you just didn't get pushed to that understanding. And that's the raw material when, when somebody graduates from the basic part of the SEAL training. After that, they just basically sharpen that, hone that, expand that, supersize it, fuel it. So when you step out of uniform and get into the regular world, your, your self-confidence is, is off the scale it's not so much that you would never quit, but you would never quit. You know, you might quit a particular approach, but then you're gonna circle around and try to attack it from a different, different direction, different angle. So you're, you're always revisiting the, the goal. For most people, they tend to, when they quit, they quit, full stop, done, it's over. SEALs tend to figure out, they figure out a way to get it done. They figure out a way to get from point A to point Z, regardless of what they're doing uh, in or out of uniform, in business or not in business. And, that, that, and they have a lot of psychological resilience from doing that, that lifestyle, which means you're failing all the time because you're trying and testing and attacking big goals and, and audacious targets all the time. What is your
0: relationship with failing today?
1: Much better than it was when I was <laughs> in my 20s and 30s. I mean, it's tied to your ego, your self-esteem, mm. your self-image. <clears throat> and socially, everybody around you reminds you that your self-esteem yourself <laughs> just took a hit because you failed, you know, they're, they're all, especially in the military, you know, there's always somebody there to point out what, what, that you stumbled and, and then everybody gets a good laugh. But what happens to me was when I got to my late thirties, I started to see failing is I guess it's where you kind of achieve a, a certain amount of wisdom. And that wisdom informs a certain level of judgment, which your judgment gets better and more sound. And I started to see failing as a training exercise. I saw mm-hmm. failing as first the attempt, you know, I, I made the jump, whatever the, whatever the jump of the leap is and into whatever pool, however deep it is. If I failed or didn't do as well as I thought I would do, at that point, I would step back and I would assess what happened. What did I do right? What did I do wrong? If what I did right is something I would reinforce in the future, note that, maybe even try to be better at that, reinforce and, and get stronger at those, at those uh, winning points. So on the points where I failed or flailed or, or I made mistakes, write down, what can I do to correct them about myself? Maybe, maybe I tried to do it all myself and I should have a partner that's, that's smarter in that particular area. And I would, and I, so I go, all right, that's what I'm gonna do in the future. I'm never going to do this on my own. I'm not qualified to do it. I got to bring in an expert. So, but that does, when you get to that point, a tipping point of wisdom and judgment, I think as you suddenly start to see failure as an opportunity, it's the second half. It's the other side of that opportunity. You know, the first one is to, to move towards the, the opportunity. But the second part is what happens when you, when you live through and get and pass through that opportunity? What did you gain from it? I, I'm at a point now where, and most SEALs will tell you this too, a, a mission or an exercise that goes perfectly to plan, that's great. You didn't learn anything. You learned nothing. If you get into a ring and you're sparring as a boxer and everything you did worked, you come out of there with this weird feeling in the back of your head that maybe you need to spar somebody who's better because you didn't make you didn't learn anything from that experience. So that's it's a it's a more mature way of looking at the uh, the downside of uh, of an opportunity.
0: And I wonder what the role here is thinking about you know uh, learning from failure, learning from you know when it doesn't go as anticipated. Uh, I, I'm curious about that, and then the connection to obviously what you cover in a great deal uh, in terms of nimbleness and and what does it mean to be nimble uh, in in a leadership capacity?
1: Sure. So, well, one thing is if you're, if you're a leader and you believe what I just said is, is a good way to um, leverage failure, you could actually set up management training and management policies and a management ethos and a culture where everybody's okay with failing. Everybody's okay with the event. And, and everybody realizes they have a responsibility to themselves and to each other is to point out as much how much can we squeeze out of this failure? How much can we learn from this failure? And then you move on. That that's something that can be taught. That's something that can be um, can be created as a as a culture within an organization. I think that's that's one takeaway from that. Um, the other part of it is if you, if you fail and you, and you move forward and you succeed, then what you really need to do is to look for better and harder targets. Because if you succeed, like I said, with the example of the boxer, maybe you aim too low. So it, there's another part of this, even if you win, you can say, well, why did I win so easily? Or why did I win with hardly any mistakes? Maybe it's because I'm going after the low hanging fruit, maybe, and, and again, organizationally, if you're a leader, what are your people doing? Are your salespeople aiming at the easy targets? And you know, when I used to manage money, uh, one of the vice presidents came to me one day and asked me what I was doing. I told him, and he said, I'll give you one piece of advice. He said, go find people with a lot of money, go shake hands with them. Mm. Seems pretty simple, right? But then I thought yeah. about it. I said, well, I'm not going out and shaking hands with people with a lot of money. And I was in the business of trying to find high net worth you know, uh, clients. That was the point. I was going after the easy, the lower hanging fruit. Mm. I was getting a lot Hi. of accounts and everything, right? Yeah. Wh- why were you going after the easy ones? Because that's 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 an easy score. Is one you see them every day, they'll let you talk to them. You meet them, they'll actually come to an appointment. Much much harder to get somebody like Elon Musk to show up at a restaurant and have a chat with you. You know, so the people that had a lot of money have lots of barriers to most psychological. You know, their sales resistance is, is there for sure, but they actually have physical barriers. They have people and oh yeah, all kinds of things. So. It's more difficult to get in, but kind of like a SEAL mission or a SEAL target, you have to study it and say, okay, how do I, I want to meet this person. How do I meet this person? The, the target is difficult, but it's also a very worthy target and, and they go together. A worthy target is usually more difficult. So that's the other part of it. You, you have to challenge yourself and make sure that if you aren't learning anything from these failures, then there's something else wrong. You're, you're aiming too low. So what is the, let's say there is an audacious goal? And maybe it is.
0: Maybe it's, uh, you know, someone that uh, they, they have their eyes on doing a business with a, a company and they're like, man, I just can't seem to, you know, that they're doing the normal, Outreach kind of stuff, and it's not really working for them. Do they give up and move on? Do they aim lower? Or, you know, how do we identify what the in is? How do we identify, you know, it's like um, if we know what the mission is, but we don't necessarily know what the strategy is to accomplish it, how do we conceptualize and design that?
1: Well, if you've never planned a mission, if you've never planned trying to penetrate, you know, defenses and security barriers and things, uh, and I'm not talking about stalking here. I'm just talking about through social media contact, email contact, getting somebody who knows the person, a third party, you know, in, invitation or introduction. I had lunch with somebody today. He's going to connect me with two people, one of which is in the um, National uh, Speakers Association Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's nice. I would have never probably been able to pick up the phone and just call them cold and say, hey, I'd like to pick your brains. But because I was able to connect with somebody who had that relationship, I'm, I'm in. At least I've got my foot in the door, right? So you have to become a student of all those different approaches, all those different, I guess, tactics that are legitimate and ethical and legal. And the other thing is, I think sometimes people get fixated on a target. They don't look at the target as a profile. So let's say I wanted to go in and I wanted to make uh, a sale of uh, leadership training to uh, a manufacturing company that has... 4,000 employees. And I know the name of the company. I see the company when I drive by, I see the buildings. And so I get fixated. How do I get in there? How do I get in there? How do I get in there? What I should be doing is saying, that's the reason I really want to get in there because that's a perfect profile. uh, I'll have a a middle management, a senior management, an executive management. I can, you know, this isn't isn't actually something I sell, but I'm just giving an example. But I've got three different tiers of potential customers in that size of a building and that size of a, a business. How many of those kinds of businesses are are there in the United States? How many of them are globally? If I just went to Canada, there might be 100,000 companies that fit the same profile. So rather than getting fixated on the one, like just Elon Musk, what you do is you find out everybody that, that comes close to Elon Musk. And there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people that have a lot of money and if I was raising money for a philanthropy, you know, for, for a charity. I wouldn't just go after the one rich person in town. I would go after all the rich people in every town. So now my odds are much, much higher, same tactics, but a much, much um, higher probability of success.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, and also it's almost like uh, the low, the road less traveled. Um, You know, if everybody's going after the same thing, all right, you go for it guys. <laughs> and meanwhile, you know, we're, 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 uh, you know, being open to other possibilities that that might get us this. If the goal is, you know, I I want to, you know, have a million dollars or seven, you know, seven figures, you know, under management or something like that. Um, So there are many ways that we can actually do that, not just you know the one that this one guru keynote speaker is talking about, and everybody's kind of doing going after the same thing. Uh, I like that. And um, in, in, in I just I want to bring this up too. Um, I would imagine in your life, uh, you know, you and fear, right? And and where this concept of fear and how fear can sometimes keep us from doing some of these scary things: fear of failure, fear of um, you know, fear of success, uh, you know, and I wonder how your relationship with fear evolved both, uh, obviously your time in the seals, but then, you know, how that continued to evolve, uh, in, in corporate. What you've,
1: what you've, I guess you evolve into is you have very little physical fear. Part of that is because you're in a, um, in an organization and a culture and a job that is going to put you in harm's way all the time. If you're jumping out of a plane at 14,000 feet at night, you know, over, uh, over some other country, and you're supposed to try to stay together in the dark and all the possible things that could go wrong, you know, eventually you just jump out of the plane. It, it is what it is. Whatever happens, happens. You'll deal with it. If something bad goes, bad goes down. So you, your sense of physical, uh, fear goes way, way down. And then of course you're getting hurt all the time. (laughs) So you, so you do get hurt. And, and I mean, I'm all, I've been all banged up, uh, orthopedically, almost every special ops guy is all banged up. So, you know, you do go through the pain and all that, but it doesn't keep you from getting back in and doing the job over and over again. The other part of the fear that doesn't necessarily change is the authoritative fear where, you know, you start out, you're, you're on the lowest rung as far as positional, Power and authority in, in the military, and and anybody above you can mess up your career. They can mess up, you know, your day. So you're kind of afraid of that. You're afraid of, you know, it doesn't, I'm not afraid to jump out of an airplane. I'm not afraid of freezing to death north of the Arctic Circle, or, or diving out of a you know, pulling uh, diving out of a, a submarine underwater in the dark. But I'm afraid that if if I do this, somebody's going to come in and they're going to kick me out of the SEAL Team. So, so that's a different kind of fear, and that was there. I think for all SEALs, all special ops guys, that's their through their their entire career because they put so much value on being in the club, being in that group, right? Uh, so it's a kind of a weird thing. It's like two sides of the same, same person, physically fearless. But then when it comes to any threat to my status in that group, in that club, uh, you're really fearful. Uh, when I got out, mostly it's about a fear of not being able to protect my family. I've got five kids and five grandkids. Or a fear of professionally not contributing. That's my primary two fears right now is that something happens that I could have anticipated that harmed a family member. And I should have thought through it and and intervened ahead of time, or I'm in a business, I'm running a business and I'm, uh, I'm not contributing. I'm no longer of any value. That's why I wake up every morning.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Marty, your website, um, martistrongbenimble.com. Right now, uh, you've got two books in a series, uh, Be Nimble, which is out right now as of when we're recording this, and then uh, Be Visionary, uh, which is around the corner. And then that's on pre-order. Uh, but you've write, written a lot of fiction books uh, or um, you know they're, they're labeled as fiction. I don't know if uh, you were inspired because a lot of them have to do with uh, seals. Uh, and so I don't know if there was any inspiration from your, real life experience, which is harder, writing fiction or nonfiction?
1: Uh, writing nonfiction is harder. It's, uh, you know, you asked me a minute ago about, you know, why be nimble or how, how are, why are, you know, leaders, why should leaders be nimble? And I almost called that book, Be Humble, because I, I believe in intellectual humility makes makes somebody more curious and that curiosity makes them more creative. That's kind of the three-step mental process. And so being nimble talks to that writing that down. And, and you always have this voice in the back of your head, who cares what your opinion is on these subjects? You know, is anybody actually going to pick the book up and read it if they haven't heard of you before? So that's a difficult exercise. The novel, especially the the four time travel novels, I basically can make up anything I want. It's science fiction. I mean, who's, who's going to tell me no time travel doesn't work that way. <laughs> Let me tell you how time travel really works. Yeah. So uh, I uh, I enjoyed the fiction. The fiction flowed. It was like watching a movie in my head, and I had to keep up with it on the keyboard. And I can write the fiction books in about ninety days. Uh, my last SEAL novel, Kandahar Moon, came out today. That was released today, at the fifth one. And the SEAL books, I started writing after I started writing the science fiction books, and I just gave myself a break. I got myself off the hook. Look, I know I'm a SEAL. I'm writing a book about SEAL stuff, but I want to write a book about what I think people should um, learn about seals, not the stuff you see in the movies, but the the kind of internal warrior ethos and the pride and the, and the brotherhood and the culture and the, you know, watching out for each other, all those kinds of aspects, which I also put in the time travel books. But I I emphasize that in the seal books, it's not just, you know, guns blazing and bombs going off and, and all that. So, I mean, even the third seal books about somebody going through traumatic brain trauma and, and ptsd and suicidal tendencies and it's a book of re- it's a story of redemption so but but i know guys like that i know guys that have those problems from being in you know sustained combat so yeah those are fun those are enjoyable uh be nimble and be visionary kind of like writing a turn paper and uh and you only get one shot because once it's published it's out there
0: yeah that's it <laughs> <laughs> It's out to print. Uh, so Marty, your website, martystrongbnimble.com There were hundreds of other things that we could have talked about that we didn't get to. I just want to say
1: thank you so much for this conversation. Hey, thanks for having me, Josh.